listening to episode 5 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the story of the Crimson Avenger. to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and today I am happy to be joined by Siskoid of Siskoid's Blog of Geekery. How are you doing, Siskoid? I'm good, I'm good. Today, folks, Siskoid and I are going to be talking Secret Origins Issue 5, which features the story of the Crimson Avenger. But before we get into that... If some of you listening to this episode don't know what Secret Origins is, I should probably tell you. Secret Origins was a DC comic series that ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990. The title also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. But do any of them star Black Vulcan or Apache Chief? No. <laughs> that is sad. No samurai. No, no. Uh, no Zan or Jaina. Yeah. Wonder Twins. How could we not get the Wonder Twins? I know. So. Okay. First of all, why did you volunteer to be my guest for this issue of Secret Origins? Well, you asked, and it's always hard <laughs> to say no. Uh, but, I, you know, I've been a I comic book... desperately. Yeah, no, not, not really, did you? <laughs> no, it, I've been a comic book blogger for... Years, eight, eight, eight years or so. Um, so I've been putting up articles at uh, Siskoid's blog of Geekery, which is my space. And, um, you know, I, one of the subjects I keep returning to is Golden Age superheroes. I love the Golden Age heroes, and uh, I would usually do I, – I do a, a sort of a series I call Who's This, uh, which is more or less weekly. And then I, I use – Different um, different characters that people don't really know that well, obscure characters, and then you know I read, I find a story with them in it, and I I discuss that story usually tongue in cheek, uh, and uh, you know I, I like exploring the the history of comics and especially DC comics, which has the biggest load of uh, of Golden Age heroes. So this we're going to be in Secret Origins is full of these because Roy Thomas wrote. Um, you know, half the series or so, and just like he wrote a lot of Golden Age heroes and brought Golden Age heroes to the um, uh, to our attention in the '80s, which was when I started reading comics. Uh, so there are a lot of secret origins about Golden Age heroes. So naturally, this is one of my favorite um, DC series ever. And this character in question, the Crimson Avenger, boasts the title of DC's first masked vigilante. 
That's right. He was seven months before Batman. Right. Seven months before Batman, only four or five months after Superman. Um, so even though this, know, was, even though this yeah. was sort of proto-DC before DC was actually DC. When it was national. Right. On, on their universe. shared timeline history of their characters, this is one of their oldest creations and one of the first ones with a mask. But by no means the the first masked hero, obviously. There are a lot of pulp heroes with masks. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and even comic book heroes with masks yeah. uh, by, from other companies. Right. And certainly, as, as we'll talk about, the Crimson Avenger does – he is a, a direct uh, stylistic and characteristic descendant of some of the masked pulp heroes. Everything from the Lone Ranger to the Phantom to the Shadow to the Green Hornet – um, uh, to the spider, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you're very kind not to call him a ripoff <laughs> <laughs> because it's very close to some of these characters. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be a little bit more generous. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was an homage to the Green. The Hornet. Asian, he's got an Asian chauffeur. He's, uh, uh, you know, he's a but publisher. He's, he's Chinese, <laughs> not Japanese. Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's the big difference. That's right. That's Wing is not Kato, as yes. we'll see. Yeah, but close. Yeah. When Secret Origins was being published, did you did you read this comic in the late 80s at the time? Because were you already a fan at the time of the Golden Age heroes? I started reading superhero – I've been reading comics all my life, but usually, um, as you can tell by my strange accent, I'm a, um, I, I, I'm, I'm a um, French-Canadian. So I first read uh, – Tintin and Asterix, and I'm not even sure how to pronounce them in English, uh, but those European styles uh, mm-hmm. books. And then I learned English through Archie and Richie Rich in the in the seventies. That's how I learned to to read English. So by maybe 1981, 82, I started I could read uh, English well enough, uh, and I started getting allowance money, and I started buying American comics, superhero comics. Uh, so the perfect age, you know, when I was 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. So. All-Star Squadron was being published at that time. And I remember picking up an, an issue of All-Star Squadron by Roy Thomas. Uh, and I, I didn't understand a single panel of it. I mean, why was, why was Batman driving that old-timey car with the, the bat face on it? Or, you know, I, I recognized some of the characters, but not the trappings. And, uh, and a lot of the characters were completely, completely new to me. I think it was the, the issue that showed the Tarantula's new costume. That's, that's, that was that issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to say All-Star Squadron number 24. Anyway, uh, and uh, that, that was like a failed experiment. I tried it and I said, what, what is this? And then I, I put it down. And the same thing had happened when I'd read um, an Invader's story at some point. You know, why is Captain America, you know, what's, what's happening here? Because it wasn't set in the present day, and I guess my, my brain wasn't up to it. Uh, but then later, when Secret Origins started, not, well, not Secret Origins, when All-Star Squadron started doing origin stories, the Doctor Fate origin, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, that made me pick it up again. And uh, so it was actually the Origins format that brought me into All-Star Squadron and then uh, finding all those back issues, which was actually pretty easy. Um, and so I got into the Golden Age Heroes that way. And I'd say that uh, – and then Secret Origins started up soon after or during. Um, so that became the companion book. So I was reading both at the same time. And I'd say that the my, my love of Golden Age comics actually – comes directly from Roy Thomas and his his own love for it, because each of those 
uh, issues, the All-Star Squadron ones and the Secret Origin ones, uh, had a lot of uh, text pieces at the back, which mm-hmm. talked about the Golden Age, talked about comic book history. And for someone who was reading them in the 80s, that meant it was like, you know, you missed 50 years of, of history. Yeah. Uh, and that was super interesting to me. And then Who's Who was also a companion to that. Uh, just like uh, Marvel Universe Deluxe was a companion to that. So, so for a budding superhero fan, uh, you had all these encyclopedias, for lack of a better word, um, coming out at the same time and feeding you on that, that whole history. So you didn't need to read all those comics not to, to know what actually happened in the, in the larger universe. So yes, I was reading Secret Origin. I missed like a couple of the first issues, mm-hmm. uh, and, but I'd say I, like number three was my first one, and then yeah, I got every one after that. Yeah, I would definitely agree that Roy Thomas's obvious love and devotion to these Golden Age characters was infectious. Um, I, I mean, I, I haven't talked to very many people, as in I don't, I haven't talked to anybody who hasn't read his Invaders or All Star Squadron or any time where he just was gushing over these older, previous generation characters and just gave readers a new appreciation, a new respect for these characters. He just he made them. He made them stand as tall as sort of the more modern, popular characters at the time, um, and in a way taller. Yeah, uh, because yeah. yeah, everyone else was on their shoulders. Right. Yeah. Um, I'll also jump back to one of the earlier things you you were mentioning. Comic books is in part how I learned to read English, and it's my first language. Um, but I was I was a crappy reader. I didn't like to read when I was a kid. I didn't I I loved stories. I could watch a TV show or a movie and recite everything that I saw in the movie. In some cases, I could memorize a movie and recall it verbatim to my friends as if I was telling them, and they didn't have to go to the movie theater. But I hated reading and writing until I really started getting into comic books. It, it, again, sort of that that eleven and twelve year old age, um, and that just turned around. That made me. A, a lover of text and the printed word. So that's our secret origins. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> and everybody needs one. So we'll be right back after this short promotional break. Hi, folks. Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaykin pen, Guy Gorker collateral damage. No, because that book was utter sh**. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming an nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which would easily make up for not covering collateral damage. Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? Uh, No, they just streamlined it so the Two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, 
No, in fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come really check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. We're back, and we're reviewing Secret Origins Issue 5, starring the Crimson Avenger. And first of all, let's just look at the cover. Actually, so awesome. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and yet, gosh, we, we needed to discuss the, um, the creative team behind this book. So Secret Origins number 5 was cover dated August 1986. The actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was May 8th of 1986. This issue was written by Roy and his wife, Dan Thomas. It was penciled by Gene Colan, who is one of my all-time, if not my all-time, favorite comics artist. Colan was inked by Mike Gustavich in this issue. It was lettered by David Cody Weiss, colored by Carl Gafford, and edited by Robert Greenberger. Even though I, I don't I think, think – Yeah, Roy, Roy edited a lot of, of it himself. Yeah, I, I, don't think that was a, I don't think that was very heavy-handed editing on the issues that Roy Thomas was writing for the series. Well, I know he had some – Roy had some uh, – I've read interviews where uh, his original plan was to have Secret Origins be uh, – each issue would present a character in order of their first appearance right. uh, ever. Right. So, so really, Chris and Avenger should have been – Second or I yeah, mean, well, close they, third? They cheated because technically Dr. Occult should have been first because right. he predated Superman. But everybody was just like, we can't have Superman not be number one. And then but, Crimson Avenger yeah. should have been number two, but Captain Marvel and Shazam was much more prevalent, much more popular at the right. time. So they bumped him up. Um, but, and then they had to put modern heroes in there. Yeah, yeah. And that was what Dick Giordano was basically saying, I'll give you half of the book for your beloved Golden Age characters, but the other half has to be new characters that the new fans want to see after Crisis. The cover is by Gene Colan, but it was inked by, who I just mentioned, Dick Giordano. And as much as I like the cover, I'm not sure how much I like Giordano's inks compared to Mike Gustavich's in the inside. Like, right. I think... The, the the splash on page one might might have been a better cover than the actual cover. Well, one thing that's interesting about the the cover, and um, I, I went back and looked at some old uh, scans of the original stories uh, from the early. Well, from you know he first appeared in Detective Comics number twenty. Yep. So I looked at uh, number twenty. I looked at number twenty two, which was his first cover appearance. Uh, cover, yeah, one of two cover appearances. And both stories have the Crimson Avenger racing after, which, which is also something that happens in the Secret Origins issue, racing after bad guys. Uh, there's a car chase where they're shooting at each other from car to car. And in each case, in each of the three cases, the, the bad guy's car smashes into something. Like they make the car <laughs> swerve and hit something. Yeah. And that's how they defeat the, the villains. <laughs> In all these stories, so in, in number 20, number 22, and in Secret Origins here, there is a car crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the cover here is actually – so I didn't, I didn't look at any other stories. I, I wonder if how often this happened uh, or if Roy Thomas simply looked at the first stories uh, to see if there, there was a Secret Origin to this character in the first place. 
which there isn't. There is, yeah, there wasn't. So I wonder how, how much that informed the content of the issue itself uh, and the cover. Although he shouldn't be driving himself, that's right. That's the other obvious thing is when you get into this, it's like he he wouldn't be driving. He had his own driver, who was a major part of his story. You can't you can't look at the character design and not see how he was <laughs> possibly a ripoff, possibly just an homage. But he he is very much in the realm of the Green Hornet and the Shadow. Um, he's one of those pulp vigilantes. He's wearing a suit. With a either a cape or a trench coat, a big hat, either a fedora or Stetson, and some kind of something like a domino mask covering the top part of his body. Yeah, um, very green hornet. You yeah. just change the colors, and right, you know, you're um, almost there. But that's that is such a good look. I mean, it's such a simple and iconic classic look. I feel like you could you can take that same look and just give it four or five different color patterns, and you're still going to have something very cool looking. And it's still a lot better than what he wound up with once um, they gave him a superhero leotard. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Anything else like about the creative team before we jump into this? Like, I, like I said, if if he isn't my number one, then Gene Colan is at least in my top three favorite artists of all time. Um, one of my other secret origins is I remember when I was a kid, I had a friend who had a friend who came over to the house for like one summer. And I don't exactly remember the situation, but this kid who I didn't really know came over to my house one time and he had a shoebox full of some of his dad's old comics. And it was a bunch of Marvel horror books. And it was like 20 uninterrupted issues of tomb of Dracula. Right. Um, like right in the middle, like issues like 40 to 60 or somewhere thereabouts. And some issues of werewolf by night, some issues of, um, maybe, maybe a Ghost Rider or maybe Marvel premiere. Um, I think there was one issue of um, Jungle Action with Black Panther and one issue of um, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, or Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, something in there. Um, but I remember just devouring those horror books, The Werewolf by Night and The, the Tomb of Dracula. And, yeah. and Gene Colan's art from then on. Like I would seek out, I would look for... Um, the Marvel showcase where I could find his work on Daredevil and his work on Captain America and all those books. I think it all, he always looks strange on pure superhero books, like his run on Wonder Woman, for example, or yeah. Gem yeah. Son of Saturn. It's always a little bit... Um, it, it makes it sort of a horror comic, even when it isn't. So it, it, he's uniquely suited to that to that genre. Right. And I, I read a lot of uh, the Tomb of Dracula I read in translation, these horrible translations <laughs> uh, from Quebec. Anyway, uh, but, but the, the nice thing was all these French comics that, that got to me before the, the, the true American ones uh, didn't have any colors. So mm-hmm. it was just the art without any you know, blotches uh, to obscure it. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it worked great. Black and white for Gene Colan. It's good stuff. Awesome. It's know. good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I agree. Like when I saw his Wonder Woman, I was like, I love Gene Colan and I love Wonder Woman, but this just isn't necessarily a good match. But then looking at his work on Batman and Detective, that was right there. That it was works. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And it works here in the, in the Crimson Avenger. It works. Yeah. Um, you know, it's meant to be noir. Right. Okay. Let's get into issue five, starring the Crimson Avenger. 
The splash on page one shows the masked Crimson Avenger looming unnaturally large over the city. It is 1938, and while World War II may not have officially begun, the world is very much at war. Imperial Japan is marching through mainland China, Nazi Germany is marching across much of Eastern Europe, and Spain is in the midst of a civil war. The story is narrated by Lee Travis, a 25-year-old man of financial and professional success. Lee Travis is the publisher of the Globe Leader newspaper, and on this particular Sunday morning, he is gushing about the scoop his newspaper just landed. Lee talks about the Japanese invading China dismissively, not realizing that his Chinese valet, Wing Hao, is distraught over the violence in his homeland. Lee tries to defend his insensitive comments by assuring Wing that his paper is reporting on Japan and China to shore up public awareness of the situation. Wing sounds dubious about Lee's effectiveness and his sincerity, and the talk leaves Lee a little rattled. Later that day, Lee is interviewed by a reporter named Claudia Barker from Downtowner Magazine. He tells her about how his family endured the Great Depression and how he disappointed his wealthy godfather by volunteering to fight in the Spanish Civil War. He didn't last long in combat before getting shot in the leg. He returned to the United States where he inherited the Globe Leader from his godfather. During the interview, Claudia is non-receptive to his charm, nor is she really that impressed by his war story or his philanthropy. She cynically makes small of the fact that he's attending a benefit for Chinese war relief at the lavish Van Gilder estate that very night, even as she lights up a cigarette with a gold lighter. When he calls her on her cynicism, she ends the interview and leaves, mentioning as she walks out that she'll probably see him at the Van Gilder estate that night. She also reminds him that it's a masquerade party. Lee forgot all about needing a costume, but luckily his secretary, Miss Stevens, remembered to order one. That night, Lee puts on the costume intended to depict a highway robber. The costume includes a black hat, a red domino mask, and a red layered jacket and cape, but it doesn't include a weapon of any sort. As Wing drives him to the Van Gilder house, he asks to stop at a gun store, but they're closed on Sunday. Luckily, Wing has a gun in the car that he lends to Lee. Recalling their conversation earlier, Lee tells Wing that tonight's charity gala is to raise money for China. Wing, however, is not impressed or appreciative at all, telling Lee that it's impossible for rich white Americans to understand the horrors that other people are suffering. And trying to act supportive while drinking champagne in Halloween costumes is more than a little insulting. It seems no matter who Lee Travis is with this day, he cannot convince people that he's a righteous crusader for social justice. Here he is, a young, handsome, successful, rich war veteran and newspaper publisher. But after a couple talks with Claudia Barker and Wing Howe, Lee Travis thinks he needs to reevaluate his entire life. And we'll pause there before moving on with the story. Looking at these early pages, uh, what do you think of the story so far? What did you get kind of from this introduction? Uh, well, um, obviously, the uh, um, – well, I think what's interesting is that Roy Thomas is usually a very wordy writer, very wordy, he's, and he's wordy here uh, to, a po- to the point where some of these older comics uh, – well, older, and they're not you – know, 80s comics and 70s comics that he wrote uh, are you – know, can be a chore to read today yeah uh, but i didn't get i didn't really didn't get this uh from um from from this issue specifically uh because he's using the first person narrative 
uh, from Lee Travis's uh, head, which uh, isn't isn't the same as having an, an omniscient narrator barging in all the time. And the the his thoughts are germane to his secret origin. He's, he's, he's got a very internal secret origin where it's about um, making realizations, thinking about his life, and it's. It's those thoughts and how he reacts to the history unfolding around him that will turn him into the Crimson Avenger. So it works in that sense. Yes, there's a lot of thinking about world history, thinking about global events at this time that makes the story feel very big, and yet it's really kind of confined to, as you said, it's a personal, it's an internal issue for for Lee and how he is feeling about his life and everything that it should he should be a very successful man and yet he feels like he's kind of disappearing in the in the storm of what's going on in the world and people keep reminding him that maybe he's not as important as he thinks he is he's an intellectual hero in that sense because it's not like you know it's not as immediate an origin as uh, say batman loses his parents driven to justice it's someone who uh, thinks about social justice is like a, I guess he's a Roosevelt uh, Democrat or whatever they call him, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know he he has to come to terms with what's around him, and he he makes a choice. It's not like uh, you could say that Batman had never had any choice. It's it's a childhood trauma that drives him. Uh, he has no choice in the matter. But the Crimson Avenger will make a uh, an actual choice. I mean, there, it's not like there's no drama or tragedy, as we'll see, but um, we can't really pinpoint those events as, you know, so life-changing that you would become a vigilante. Right. Uh, it's, it's something he thinks about. At the same time, we do get this idea that he is a man of action, too. He did volunteer and joined the Spanish Civil War. Um, he took part in what would have been called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, um, I actually I had to look it up. The Spanish Civil War ran from 1936 until about 1939, when it looks like it was just sort of engulfed in World War II, and that kind of took it over, as far as I could see. So his involvement would have been early on, because this, this is 1938. The, that war wouldn't have even ended at the time that this story is going on. Right. Um, I think looking at looking at the art. If there's one thing that I felt was kind of lacking in these early pages, I don't know if if Gene Colan necessarily gave Lee Travis a distinguishing form or a distinguishing face when he's not in costume. I mean, we we recognize who Clark Kent is when he's not being Superman. There's just, you know, like there's something about the hair and the glasses and even usually even though he, you know, he doesn't I think most people you can usually tell when you're looking at Bruce Wayne, even if he's not wearing the Batman costume. And I don't know if I necessarily get that from this. If I'm not being told that that's Lee Travis, how do we know? Yeah, yeah, it, it, that it, it is true to the original comics, um, where Lee Travis. I, I had trouble in these in those early stories rereading those old strips, um, distinguishing just through the art, distinguishing between Lee and. Um, 
other characters like the district attorney or the uh, uh, you know there's a ca- there's a real feeling of true crime comics in the uh, in the original strips. Uh, so you've got a DA, you've got it, that you know recurring characters like that. You can tell there's the same police, the same lawyers um, show up in um, in the in different strips, but they all look like men in business suits. So it's it's true to that. You didn't have any distinguishing characteristic in the original comics. Um, so that's probably the you know the, that handicapped Gene and Roy in this. I also wonder if there's um, there, there's a shot on page uh, five of the Globe Leader, which is the mm-hmm. the newspaper, and I didn't see any. I, I never saw the Globe Leader. You know, outside shot in the old comics that I managed to find, um, but um, it's got to be pre Daily Planet, right? Uh, uh, so, so is this the because the or the original comics had Superman working at the Star? This is yeah, only a few right. months uh, later, so there, you know, there's a big globe on top of a building. Um, so I'm I'm wondering <laughs> I'm wondering if. You know, this is this predates the Daily Planet, or if it's an invention for the Secret Origins issue. Was the Daily uh, Planet was that created for the the serial, the for the TV shows or the radio drama, or was that from the from the actual comics? What what was the first appearance of the Daily Planet? I I'd really have to check. I, I know it was the. It's early on. It's it's earlier than. It's not like uh, Silver Age. You know, it's like 1940 probably. Or um, I'm actually looking this may, up right now. Okay, because the the original stories were at, in the original stories he worked a newspaper that didn't have you know I don't think the paper is even named in the first story, but the Star was named after the Toronto Star because Metropolis was vaguely based on Toronto, which was uh, one of the cities um, that uh, Schuster had lived in. Yeah. So, um, so in that sense, Superman's Canadian. But the so, according to the Wikipedia's. Yeah. Um, the first appearance of the Daily Planet was in Action Comics 23, which was in April of 1940. So that would have been after that would have been after um, the Crimson Avengers' first appearance in Detective Comics. Right. Now again, which, I, I don't know yeah. if they ever showed the outside the of the Globe Leader. Leader and showed a planet on it, but but it's the kind of thing that Roy Thomas would have you know researched and mm-hmm. injected into the story. If um, I doubt the I imagine the building is authentic <laughs> yeah. uh, for him to include it because it's a panel where suddenly we're still hearing Lee Travis talk, but we're seeing the building from the outside. There's no motivation for it, and then we're right back in the office. So there's no motivation for it except to show the building. Yeah. yeah. So it's probably referenced. But so it's, it's interesting that you know DC had this um, this other Daily Planet from you know a different Daily Planet, I guess. Um, in another of its uh, of its uh, franchises, or well, franchise is probably a big word for Crimson Avenger. <laughs> oh, we're very generous with this. <laughs> okay, any other notes about the first couple pages about this first half? Uh, no, that's what that's um, that's what I had here. Um, again, like it, the first couple pages are good; they're solid. You get kind of the moody atmosphere that's just general from. When we're talking about a Gene Colan book, uh, but then page seven and eight, boom! As soon as he's in the costume, it's it just feels different. Um, right, he even seems to have a different face. Yeah, and it's like a harder face. And you, you know, 
someone who's had a harder life suddenly. It's yeah, the effect of the mask. There's, yeah, there's more angles to his face. It looks like there's just more shadows. Yeah. And... All right, then do you want to pick up from there? I can. Lee Travis arrives at the Halloween War Benefit, and old-timey radio buffs may realize that it's Halloween 1938, and there are characters starting to listen to Orson Welles' famous, or infamous, War of the Worlds broadcast. The same broadcast that caused mass hysteria when many listeners tuned in late and didn't catch it was all fiction. Soon enough, the party is disrupted by patrons thinking it's a newscast. Claudia Barker saves the party by revealing she knows all about Welles' show, and Lee scores a dance with her. But then a guard runs in screaming about Martians, and the little green men behind him make him burst into flames and start asking for wallets and purses. Lee saves the burning guard by pushing him into a pool. But he can't save Claudia when she resists the thieves' attempt to take her gold lighter. They gun her down, and taking off their masks, race off, hoping to use the Martian hysteria to get by roadblocks. Inspired by Claudia's last words, qui vidicet, Ibit, which means the Avenger will come, he takes off after them and Wing picks him up in the car. He's got something at stake as well. The charity money was meant for his country. Cue hysteria montage. It's not just the radio program. People are also seeing aliens involved in a shooting car chase. While Wing swerves to avoid the thug's flamethrower, Lee hits the weapon's gas tank with a bullet and the full Martian goes tumbling out of the getaway car. The other thieves crash the car, and run to the shore on foot. But Lee pursues and knocks two of them out of commission with his fists. Wing handles another with martial arts. He simply must teach Lee some of that sometime. The last guy gets shot in the back by a local farmer who won't stand for Martians on his lawn. Lee finds Claudia's lighter in the... (laughs) (laughs) So, it's true. It's true. (laughs) Lee finds Claudia's lighter in the thieves' hall... And its inscription repeats her last words. Police sirens and Lee's instinct is to leave. He'd rather his newspaper talk about a mysterious Crimson Avenger who defeated the Martian thieves than to be named as the vigilante himself. From Claudia and from Wing, he was reminded that some things are worth fighting for, and so the Crimson will fight again. As a final aside, the story is dedicated to the memory of Orson Welles, who died while the art for this issue was being delivered. And thus ends... Secret Origins number five, starring the Crimson Avenger. Give or take. <laughs> Give or take Roy <laughs> Thomas's long liner notes. Yeah. Uh, and a reproduction of the, um, his fir- uh, the Crimson's first uh, cover on Detective number 22. Yeah. Um, until I read this issue, I never realized how badly I wanted to see frog monsters holding Tommy guns. <laughs> now that's all I want to read about is frog monsters with Tommy guns. Those guys were pretty uh, prescient because um, you know we know now that there was going to be there, there was a you know a Martian hysteria uh, on the night of that broadcast. But these guys basically you know you know they read TV or Radio Guide. <laughs> they yeah, read, yeah. They read Radio Guide and they they ran for it. Uh, you know that's that's going to work. Yeah, Claudia <laughs> has almost sort of a throwaway line that oh yeah somebody else must have gotten word <laughs> somebody else must have seen uh, Orson Welles' script and planned this robbery accordingly. How did they know that people were going to be freaking out about this? How did they know people were going to be listening? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, and the, the, well, in the comic, they, they sort of 
cause the hysteria as much as the, the radio show does. True. Uh, so, true. so there's the real hysteria from the radio, but also actual alien sightings. So, you know, yeah. there's a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the, the radio element is extra perfect because uh, obviously Roy Thomas used uh, that... But, you know, he loves to put in real history in his stories. It's not just about the Golden Age characters and fictions. It's also about um, you know, actual history at the time. And because the, uh, the, the Crimson's first appearance had an October 38 uh, cover date, which is not the same as actually coming out in October. Right, the issue would have come, come out in the summer, but it's still the cover right. date of October and this happened in October of 38, so he matches the two stories. But the, um, what's extra perfect is that the Crimson Avenger is based on a, a lot of older pulp heroes who got their start or their fame from radio shows. Exactly. Yep. So it's like, um, it's like a meeting of two radio shows. Right. It's, it's a crossover between radio shows. And the, the sort of it's, – it's, like it's a montage scene. It's like this – a chase scene with the, the sort of – diegetic sound effects of the radio show going on outside. If you if you tried to describe that to me and didn't give me the context of the comic, I wouldn't imagine that that could work. I would say that would have to be something done in film to capture like the visual and audio sensation of seeing um, Orson Welles himself in the studio reading these lines and seeing the context of how people in America are suffering and they're freaking out. And you've also, you're just opposing that with this action scene, this chase between the crimson and these fake Martian thieves. Right. Like when the Martians use, Martians use their lasers or whatever to to kill people. But at the same time, we're seeing fake Martians, uh, you know, using a flamethrower on the crimson's car. So it's, uh, everything kind of matches up, and it's it's and it again does, it's it, that it works so well. I don't know. It's it's a perfect combination of both Thomas nailing the writing, and Gene Colan just getting the art absolutely perfect to kind of set this mood. Like I love these scenes, and oh, yeah. again, I wouldn't think you could do this outside of a movie, but they capture it really, really, really well in these pages. And it's again that wordiness, but because the the words aren't a, a the typical blabby uh, narrator um, it actually makes the comic more modern than uh, a lot of what Roy Thomas usually writes yeah in my opinion yeah actually it does like there's just like a, a flow and maybe it's partly is because it's not necessarily Thomas's not actually his words maybe he's I, I I would have to double check but I'm assuming that he's actually going to the the actual text the actual dialogue from the radio show that he's quoting here um, oh yeah probably and um, going back to the party a few pages on page 10, I didn't notice it until just an hour ago when I was flipping through these and like jotting down a few last-minute notes. Um, on page 10, panel 3, when we get our establishing shot of the party, Daredevil is in this shot. Gene <laughs> Cullen drew Daredevil. Yeah, it looks like Daredevil. It, it's, it's the horns be, are slightly different, but you know. It's slightly yeah. different. I think you can see his ear or his hair, but it's clearly that is definitely an homage. Somebody's dressed up in a devil costume and it looks like you can sort of see a letter D might be on his chest. I think that was just a really cute little Easter egg that Gene Cullen probably threw in for himself. And I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um 
yeah, uh, and, and I kept looking at the rest of the party to find uh, any other Easter eggs, but um, or Halloween eggs, yeah, uh, whatever the case may be. But um, he's he's the only one there. Yeah. So we kind of get this a sense of tragedy leading to his origin with the the murder of Claudia Barker, and having this this golden lighter, which he finds out doesn't just have the quotation "The Avenger will come," but it also it was given to her by somebody in Spain during their civil war. So he feels that that bond that they were both there at the same time during the war. He feels this connection to her and now she's been taken. So even though the buildup was very much sort of all of these world events that he was trying to feel connected to just made him feel smaller. It seems like it is this one tragic murder that really kind of propels him into action. It's, it's rather a shocking twist as well because um, when you look at other the other pulp heroes, his, his uh, near ancestors, uh, they, there's usually a strong uh, female character in the, the cast. And it's very much like Claudia Barker, also a journalist or also a debutante um, uh, woman about town kind of character, um, whether, whether it's the Shadows Margot or um, you know, various others. And in, in this case, that's the setup. That's very much the setup. She's yeah. a bit snooty and all that, but sh- that's the setup. And then, and then she's murdered. Yeah, you know. So uh, because the original stories had obviously had wing in them, in them, but didn't have there. There wasn't a female character. There uh, was Thomas did mention that at first. Uh, yeah. Lee's Lee's secretary, Miss Stevens, was a character from the original comics, and she gets like half a page devoted to her in this comic, but she's pretty much a non-entity. Um, yeah. So, so that character, that Margot Lane character, um, you know, gets bumped off in the first story. So th- that's kind of shocking, and it it is a, a it is meant to be a serious story. It's uh, you know, I, I glossed over the montage, the hysteria montage, as I called it. But in that hysteria montage, is a woman about to commit suicide mm-hmm. because the aliens are coming, uh, because she thinks aliens are coming. Uh, she's got a, a bottle of poison in her hand, and you know, and her husband, I imagine, is trying to stop her. Yep. So it, it is, you know, and then you, and then a woman is murdered. So it's, you know, it's, it's rather dark for um, uh, for a, a superhero origin story like this, where the no one close to the hero actually uh, actually dies in the same way that you know uh, if we uh, we mentioned Batman. Right. So. Yeah, it's still a pretty noir story. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the the opening splash page where the narration says, look, it's it's a mad world. The world is kind of going to hell right now. There's problems everywhere. These are the type of events that would lead to a man wearing a mask where you wouldn't consider him a psychopath, where it seems like that would be the, the sane reaction to an insane world. Plus frog monsters. Plus frog monsters with Tommy guns. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but the, yeah. So to me, it's still a very internalized kind of origin. So even if obviously he had a connection to Claudia, but you know, a very recent connection. They weren't. They weren't close. Right. They shared a dance. It's a, It's really a what might have been kind of scenario for for him to to go off the deep end this way. So it it's really is a. a the comic shows us how he's building towards that point, which includes 
uh, his, his, his own socialism, uh, his own going to, a, to fight in a civil war that was not his own, but for social justice, his own crusader journalism uh, ideals, all of that. And I, the fact that Wing comes from a war-torn country as well, uh, all of that builds up to his realization that the world needs someone that, that, that can work you know, uh, outside the law. It works. I I was surprised when when I read this. I, I I wasn't expecting much because I didn't honestly know that much about the character. But clearly, I mean, Roy Thomas is a great writer. Jean Colin is a great artist. So they put together a heck of a good story. It's and it, you're right, it's it's different than most of the other origins that we get in the series. Um, it's it's a, maybe a little bit more cerebral, maybe a little bit more political. Um, while still being a kind of pulp nor love letter to some of those stories like the Green Hornet and the Shadow and the Phantom. And I suppose it's unusual because the um, usually Secret Origins is about retelling an origin. While in this case, there was nothing to retell. They had right. to make it up you know, from whole cloth. Uh, there, there is an origin story. Well, I, I can read you the origin story. Uh, from the original comics, because each of the original strips started with the same kind of blurb. And this okay. is all it said. This is all they said. Yep. F- feared by the underworld and hunted by the police, the Crimson carries on the work of befriending the helpless. Known as the Crimson to only his Chinese servant, Wing, Lee Travis is the wealthy publisher of the Globe Leader. That's it. That That was like... The first story had this as context, and that's it. It got into a uh, crime story right away. And this was repeated over on the top of each of the, the first few strips. So just so that, setting up, this is who he is. He's, he's a vigilante kind of operating outside the law, hunting criminals, but also hunted by the police. And this is his sidekick manservant. So in reality, that's all Roy had to work with. And then really he used... Uh, the events of the day to, to to inform the the origin stories. It's as much about the Orson Welles broadcast as it is about um, the Crimson. Right. He probably had to work a little bit harder for the script, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to the secret origin of Superman, where he's in some cases just taking dialogue directly from action and Superman number one. And that's a story a lot of, you know, most people know already. So uh, it's about retelling it. In this case, it's a complete discovery, and uh, as it was to the writer himself. He had to discover it, you know. Let's take this opportunity to actually segue and look at some of the publishing history of this character prior to this story. The Crimson Adventure was created by writer-artist Jim Chambers. He first appeared in Detective Comics number 20, only a few months before Batman would debut in Detective, and only a few months after Superman first appeared in Action Comics number 1. The Crimson Avenger, who was originally called the Crimson, as you said, holds the title of being DC Comics' first masked vigilante. The character never had an origin story before this issue of Secret Origins. Roy Thomas got to make this story up entirely, although the supporting characters of Wing and Lee Travis's secretary, Miss Stevens, were pre-established characters from the Golden Age. In Detective Comics number 44, which came out in 1940, the Crimson Avenger got a total costume redesign. At this point, many of the pulp heroes were being phased out and replaced with the more elaborately costumed superheroes. 
Crimson Avenger got a costume very close to that worn by the Phantom, except it was done in red, with yellow boots, yellow underwear, and a yellow fin that ran down his head. The costume also had a yellow and black sunburst on the chest, which was eventually retconned to be a bullet hole or bullet wound years later when comics stopped caring about how these things would affect people. Uh, In 1941, the Crimson Avenger became one of the founding members of the Seven Soldiers of Victory in the pages of Leading Comics No. 1. A year after that, in Detective Comics 59, Wing Howe got his own costume and became not just Lee Travis's chauffeur, but the Crimson Avenger's superhero sidekick, although he was still just known as Wing. And during this era, his depiction was pretty horribly racist. The Crimson Avenger and Wing disappeared from comics in the mid-1940s. The Avenger came back with most of the Seven Soldiers of Victory in issues of Justice League of America, where Wing's death was explained. The Crimson Avenger's death was told in DC Comics Presents number 38, in a story called Whatever Happened to the Crimson Avenger, written by Len Wein. And that's all I got. (laughs) Well, the Whatever Happened to was actually the first... uh, my, my, the first American comic I ever bought was a DC Comics Presents. It's the one with the uh, Legion of Substitute Heroes, yep. which I talk about often enough. But uh, I got some older issues, and the first whatever happened to backup I ever read was this one, where the um, the Crimson Avenger comes out of, is is in has a terminal illness, but comes out of retirement briefly when from his hospital window or whatever he sees a a, a boat in trouble in the bay. Runs to the boat, finds out the boat is laced with explosives or, you know, obviously there's criminal activity here. And he drives the – he can't stop the bomb and he drives the boat uh, away from the city to protect the the citizens. And he explodes. You know, he dies in a blaze of glory as as, as they say. Um, I would think it would have been a car crash based on the theme you pointed (laughs) earlier. Well, it's still vehicle-based. Yeah, he's still driving something and crashing it and exploding. Yeah, it's still still fast and furious there. But (laughs) – and – yeah, no, the um, – the uh, it, well, he lasted quite a long time when, when you think about it, in the, the Golden Age itself. Uh, if he started at t- Detective number 20 and he ran through that series until number 89, mm-hmm. it's like five years. That's uh, a, little more, a little more than five years uh, with a uh, continuous strip. So that's, that's a good run. Yeah. Plus, I mean, plus appearances in – in leading comics, so he was kind of, I mean, he was appearing in more than one issue, or more right. than one comic. He ran with the Seven Soldiers for 14, 14 issues uh, until the spring of 45, uh, So, and but only got the cover twice, except, obviously, with the Seven Soldiers, he got, he got to be on the cover mm-hmm. uh, in, those, in those leotards. Um, and then there was, after the, that whatever happened to, obvious, obviously, he appeared in All-Star uh, Comics, uh, All-Star Squadron, I mean, a couple times. He wasn't one of the featured characters, but the Seven Soldiers did show up, and so did he. Uh, and this issue of Secret Origins, obviously, and he would appear in other Secret Origins. He's friends with other Golden Age heroes, but I, that's a story for another day, I suppose. Uh, and in 1988, uh, which was the 50th anniversary of the Crimson Avenger, and I must say, even though he was called the Crimson originally, his strip was still called Crimson Avenger. So uh, technically, he's the Crimson Avenger even though people inside the, the world of the story called him the Crimson. Uh, but um, so for his 50th birthday, he got a miniseries, again, by Roy and Dan Thomas, mm-hmm. art by Greg Brooks and uh, Mike Gustavich. Uh, it's a four-issue miniseries. Uh, that four-issue miniseries reads a lot like 
the Secret Origins. So it's it's got a lot of history in it. Um, it's um, there's something I, I I mention a lot, you know, as trivia um, uh, about whenever we talk about the First World War, pre World War, uh, the Second World War, and pre war era. I, I'm friends with a lot of people, a lot of history buffs, and we talk about um, Hitler parties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hitler parties. Because proceed. <laughs> yes, in the in the miniseries, I wasn't sure you were still with me. The, in the miniseries, um, there's also a party. There's also a party where where rich people go. It also starts a bit like that, and that party has um, is a Hitler party where Hitler was basically a laughing stock to the rest of the world because he looked silly before the war, uh, before he became you know Hitler. He was this tiny little German man with a funny Charlie Chaplin mustache. So people would dress up as him and go to parties with the little mustache and all that to make fun of him. And I guess this is based on true fact. And in the story, uh, they, Roy Thomas uses this as instead of a Halloween party, it's, it's, it's a Hitler party. And uh, that always struck, struck me as very bizarre, but it's something I – you know, something I often mention as one of the quirkier elements um, of the um, of the pre-war era. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the story is a bit the same. Where there's a lot of history, um, it's very uh, it's very wordy, and but it's very um, uh, how can I put it? I mean, I mean it's 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 got a lot of history, and it's very dense. In that sense, where he uses a lot of the history, it's very adult, uh, white supremacists, and um, so you've got you've got a lot of of that kind of pulp stuff in it. The same way, and in the miniseries, he's using not guns that shoot bullets, but guns, uh, a gas gun that mm-hmm. knocks people out, right. um, which is the Sandman's modus operandi. Right, right. Yeah, it was but, a, it was a sort of a popular convention of the time that a lot yeah. of characters used guns but slightly different guns again the green hornet was kind of doing the same thing he had slightly different types of guns yeah and this is true to the original strip uh, where he used the gas gun but uh, in the secret origins if you just read the secret origins um, real guns are being used there's no gas gun yet so there's no origin of the gas gun not yet right. we'll we'll get to that one day i suppose but um so that miniseries didn't really you know lead to anything uh, <laughs> it was like an anniversary story. It was uh, quite competent. I, I wish it. I, I wish it was um, collected because it deserves to be seen. The art was very nice. I've got uh, those. I've got those four issues in my uh, in my shopping cart at mycomicbookshop.com. I want to get them because I I was reminded of them when I was researching this issue, and I just love those covers by Scott Brooks or wait, Greg Brooks or Scott Greg Brooks. Brooks. Greg, Greg Brooks. Brooks. Sorry. Um, right. I love those covers for some of those issues, and I, I remember seeing those years ago, like in a long box or back issue bin, and thinking that, gosh, that just looks really cool. And for whatever reason, I never picked them up. But yeah, I it's think- it's not quite Gene Colan, but there is a the, the there's such a muted a muted um, color palette that it's you know it's it's got the feel of. You know, old timey newspaper or old serials. It feels like the Crimson Avenger would have been a serial, uh, you know, a matinee hero. 
Yeah. Uh, but he, he never was. But, uh, you know, it's got the feel of that. It f- feels like we're in the 1930s just by the colors. So um, the miniseries is, is worth looking at, definitely. And then later on, well, we do have – I mean, the, the Crimson Avenger just recently appeared in Convergence, <laughs> you know, the oh, really? uh, DC Summer – um, or you know whatever whatever you want to call it summer event yeah. uh, and uh, because there is an Earth Two segment or there's a city from Earth Two and the um, uh, the the seven soldiers are in it mm-hmm. including the Crimson Avenger uh, but in the leotards of course and um, what I, one thing I liked about the latter day use of the Crimson Avenger uh, is from I'm trying to remember which issue of but I believe it's in JLA, uh, Grant Morrison's JLA, where he used the like, – it's like the Justice League had the, uh, the Crimson Avengers hat and cloak and gun, and they used it in a sort of initiation ceremony. So you want to be a Justice Leaguer? Okay, you know, whatever. There's a test, I imagine. And then you would ha- you'd swear on these objects, these sacred objects from the DC Universe's past. Because he was the first hero. Because once, obviously, once you retcon Superman out of the Golden right. Age, after the crisis, he would have been the first hero on their new timeline. Right. There's no Batman. There's no Superman. So, Crimson Avenger is the first one. So you basically pledge on the these artifacts that belong to the um, the first superhero among us. And there was even like. Um, the pledge has something like, you know, the first of our kind, blah, something like that. But, um, I can't remember now. But um, so he has a legacy, and that's a, a very direct legacy, as well as there have been other Crimson Avengers uh, in the JSA comic. For example, there's a female uh, Crimson Avenger, and uh, I think there, uh, the Crimson Avengers appeared in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon yeah, yeah. a couple times. Uh, including in the now classic This Little Piggy, where Wonder Woman becomes a pig. Uh, he's in that one. Um, and he's voiced by uh, Kevin Conroy, who usually voices Batman, so that's perfect. And then there's uh, he also gets a mention, I found this out, he's, got a men- he's mentioned in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. In the movie or the comics? Uh, the comics. <laughs> in, in the Black Dossier, which I, I guess takes place uh, later. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's used as if he was just another of these, um, of these iconic heroes, iconic uh, literature characters that, um, that, that belong to everyone. So, um, so, so he does have – people do remember him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Writers do remember him, uh, even though – you know, I, I would agree he is fairly obscure. Yeah. Well, among my many, many, many fantasy love projects that I would like to, that if I ever got a chance to do, which I never will, but I've always said like I would like to, I want to do a Golden Age television series like devoted to the the J, the JSA characters, the Justice Society characters, um, and it would be maybe sort of like a limited like eight to ten episode sort of maxi-series. An Agent Carter kind of thing. Yeah, that type of thing. Um, and it would... The first episode would start with the Crimson Avenger being the first of these heroes. And he would die in that first episode. But his death, or his appearance, would sort of inspire more of these characters. And you would see how that inspires Sandman, and then Our Man, and then more of the, the powered characters that you'd get, like Green Lantern, and The Flash, and Hawkman. And all of them would sort of come together slowly 
Um, but it would start with the, the death of the Crimson Avenger. I'd watch that. I, I think a lot of people <laughs> would. I, I just need to find the right people in Hollywood to make that happen. <laughs> one day, one day. One day. So, all right. I think I, that's about – that's exhausted my notes for this issue. I'm trying to think if there's any other, any other ideas that I had about the Crimson Avenger. Do you have anything else? Any other comments or thoughts? Uh, well, I was uh, I was going to do a little recommended reading thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, in addition to the uh, miniseries, which I I think is recommended reading, uh, if you can find it, and I'm I'm sure you can find it in you know bargain bins across the land. I, I would also recommend the, the original Pulp Heroes. Um, it's not Crimson Avenger, but it's um, you know it's where the Crimson Avenger uh, well, you know, it's where the Crimson Avenger comes from, uh, and um, uh, one place where you can find a lot of these is uh, VintageLibrary.com, where you can get uh, a lot of the Shadow Doc Savage as well, but it's not not so um, not, not so relevant to this conversation. But a lot of the Shadow and the Spider stories, which the Spider being my favorite pulp hero, probably, uh, and you can find those stories there in um, you know electronic print or even audio format um, and I've had no problems with the, the service uh, certainly so um, and I've got like a nice collection of uh, spider stories here thanks to uh, it's like facsimiles, it's basically reproductions of the original uh, stories as they would have appeared so uh, if you close your, well if you close your eyes you can't read but if you squint <laughs> you can sort of, you know, decide that you're actually reading about the Crimson Avenger um, even though it's supposed to be the spider or the shadow, because they're very, very, they're, they're very similar in tone, certainly. Um, so I would recommend uh, those as well for people who are interested in the Crimson Avenger himself or What's characters the site again? similar. What's the website again? VintageLibrary.com. VintageLibrary.com. I'm not yep. aware of that, but uh, that sounds great. I really like that idea. I'm going to check that because, out. Because, yeah, I, I looked for for pulp stories. Um, you know, for a long time, trying to find where I could find them at good prices, uh, and you know they're often discontinued on Amazon or other uh, book sites. Uh, but uh, that's where I eventually found them, and um, you know, um, and started building my library uh, because there are no real, you know, I mean, the Crimson Avenger isn't be- being published right now. Right. There, there's there are no new. Crimson Avenger stories, um, but I I would like I would like it if uh, you know DC Comics suddenly decided oh let's uh, let's uh, do a retro thirties series you know like a Sandman Mystery Theater kind of thing again absolutely and the Crimson Avenger is um, you know he's he's rather let's say uh, generic in a sense mm-hmm. but I think he's supposed to be. Um, when you look at DC history, the DC Comics history, he, he is the first, and so everyone else would seem to to mirror him, just as he mirrors characters that came before him. Yeah. Uh, he's a he's a he's a prototype for the masked, the mystery man, as they called them in yeah. the in the forties. Yeah. yeah, awesome, awesome, very very cool. Well, all right, Siskoid, it was awesome having you here. Um, and I'm sure my listeners will want to hear more from you or read more from you. So where can people find you online? Uh, well, I'm, um, I'm, basically, <laughs> I'm basically set up at Siskoid's blog of geekery, which is siskoid.blogspot.com. Uh, I, wrote, I write like two articles a day just on that particular site. And uh, I'm also a member of the Legion of Super Bloggers, 
Just write that down in Google, and you know you'll get to that particular blog if the Legion uh, is um, is more your flavor. Uh, we write stuff every day on on that site as well, uh, so, and various other places. You know, but usually, if you go to the the Cisco's blog of Geekery, you can you can filter through to every other project that you might be interested in that I'm also interested in. Very, very cool. One more time, it was great having you on the show. Thanks um, for inviting me, Ryan. Not a problem. I love talking about this issue with you, and I am definitely looking forward to having you back in future episodes. Time for listener feedback from the show's secret admirers. On the Facebook page, Gord Tolton wrote, I love this podcast and I love Secret Origins, especially the Golden Age-centric issues. I was saddened when Roy seemed to be forced out and that he was not allowed to finish so many origins that had been started or that so many were left untold. I really felt the last year of the title was stretching for ideas and in many cases dipping very low, but they knocked it out of the park with the closing issue with the reconciliation of Black Canary's origin into the post-crisis world. Thanks for the comment, Gord. We'll see how other listeners and guests feel about the series after Roy Thomas departs. Also on Facebook, Rob Kelly said, Enjoyed the latest episode, and considering who was your guest this time around, I hope you take that as the compliment it was meant to be. Van Z said, Great episode. I love this podcast. On the previous episode, you had stated that fans will be called secret admirers, which is okay, I guess. I was thinking more along the lines of secret orgiers. Rumor has it there are some fans in my ho- in my hometown. Small world. Secret orgiers. I like where your head's at, Van, but maybe not for this show. And Aaron Moss said, Can't wait to hear this one. Secret Origins, check. Firestorm, check. Ryan Daly, check. The Irredeemable Shag. Well, everything has to have a drawback. I've gotten a ton of great listener feedback this week on the WordPress page. Some of the responses are quite lengthy, so I'm only going to be reading portions of those comments. And as always, I direct my listeners to check out the site at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com to read the entire comments, especially since there are some good conversations between the listeners. Going all the way back to episode 2, the Blue Beetle origin, Diablo Frank said, Gil Kane was one of the first artists I could recognize as a distinctive creator growing up, and not always in a good way at that point, but the older I get, the more I adore his work. There are panels in this issue that are loose, even a little sloppy, and I still marvel at what he can convey with just a few well-placed squiggles. Uh, Frank does a Power of the Atom blog and podcast now, so he's covering Gil Kane's work on the Silver Age Atom adventures. And he also said, Now that Marvel Studios and Chris Evans have made Captain America popular again, I get to read a lot of sneering articles about how boring Cap is, and it makes me want to line up rows of their faces for the slapping. Heroes with complex or circumstantial motivations are fine, and I'd probably prefer them in the more black-and-white world Blue Beetle was conceived in. But now that popular fiction is drowning in that type, I prefer the simple joys of a man of action fighting the good fight. It feels pretty sweet to do the right thing and kick ass while you're doing it, and sometimes that's more than enough. I wonder, too, if the Depression-era kids knew they had to work and hustle to accomplish things, while the boomers expected everything handed down to them as entitlement, even their superheroics. That said, though, Dan Garrett's a crazy person and should have probably died before he even got to that scarab, but he seems like a fun guy to have around at story time. He continued, I'm heartened to recognize that a Gil Kane-drawn vile menagerie circa 1986 would have still blown Blue Beetle 1.5s away, but not so sure an Adam one drawn today could. 
don't think Kronos or the Bug-Eyed Bandit would offer serious competition. Yeah, for sheer variety and colorfulness, Dan Garrett's Rose Gallery looked like a lot of fun. I doubt they'll ever appear again, and there's probably not even a need for them, but they do kind of point out the lack of memorable villains among some much more popular heroes. And also from the Blue Beetle episode, Jeff Nettleton said of Ted Kord's appearance on the Batman the Brave and the Bold cartoon, It was everything great about Ted and science heroes. It's funny that as DC seemed to get darker and science heroes and jokesters became marginalized, the master of dark comics, Alan Moore, went the other direction with characters like Tom Strong. If only DC had slavishly imitated his work from that period. And Jeff said, I'm enjoying the podcast so far and look forward to more, especially Captain Marvel, which I will sample next. (laughs) Well, Jeff sounded really excited for the Captain Marvel episode before he listened to it. Afterwards, eh? Well, he said, I first encountered Captain Marvel in Shazam number 10, a comic my mother bought for me while I was sick with bronchitis and was picking up medicine at the drugstore. The comic featured Aunt Minerva trying to force Captain Marvel to marry her. The inside featured that story, an odd one with alien vegetables, and a Mary Marvel story. I knew Superman and Batman mostly from the Filmation cartoons, but this was way cooler. It was totally off the wall and fun. I fell in love. I was able to get a few more issues here and there, plus read some issues from a friend's collection. The best stories always turned out to be reprints of old Fawcett stories. DC never really seemed to get a handle on the character, though E. Nelson Bridwell tried and came the closer than most. Uh, Jeff goes on, Post-Crisis, DC really struggled with the character. It didn't fit into their universe, and they eliminated the alternative world. He floundered. This was a nice intro into his origin and caps off the original character, but I don't think Thomas's Shazam! A New Beginning worked very well. It tried, but kind of fell flat. It was missing the whimsical touch. And I think that's an important point that does get brought up quite often. DC has tried to do a lot with Captain Marvel over the decades, since they bought the character. But we don't grade them for effort. And then Jeff talked about the Power of Shazam book by Jerry Ordway, but then he could no longer conceal his disappointment with the episode's approach to Captain Marvel. He said... It seems a bit odd that no one really seems to be a fan of Captain Marvel or very familiar with him. It's different and reflects much of the modern audience. But, given this is devoted to a book that explored history, you have a panel that seems ignorant of that history. Okay, well, at the time I started developing this podcast, there wasn't a dedicated blog or podcast for Captain Marvel that I was immediately aware of. I assumed that a lot of my listeners and future guests would have some familiarity with the character, but I tried an experiment. I offered it to my friends who had a little knowledge of Shazam, but not the full background. Sometimes, when you have a community of fans obsessed with the same characters and ideas, the group can become very protective of itself, and very homogenous, which isn't necessarily bad. But when it came to Captain Marvel, I didn't have a go-to expert right in mind, although it sounds like I could have asked Jeff or Kyle Benning. So I thought, here's an opportunity to go outside, to get an outsider's perspective of the character. And just in case it wasn't clear, all three of us, Paul, Nathaniel, and I, we all like the character, at least in concept. We just weren't blown away by the story. I think Secret Origins Issue 3 is a good story, but it was ill-timed and ill-placed post-crisis on Infinite Earths. And I think Jeff even recognizes the reason for our problem with it by calling it a bipolar approach to Captain Marvel. The character is light, he is whimsical, he's innocent, but I think Roy Thomas went out of his way to make the character darker in the Secret Origin and the miniseries that followed. And I have it on good authority, 
which is a phrase I never thought I would say until just now, that Roy Thomas wanted Rick Stacy off the Captain Marvel feature in Action Comics Weekly because he didn't think Stacy was a good fit. And I think Stacy's art on that series was a lot closer to the lighthearted tone of the character than either Jerry Bingham or Tom Mandrake delivered. And then Jeff goes on to talk more about the history of the character and putting some of these story elements into context. He also responded to one of Kyle Benning's comments from earlier in the thread. And lastly, Jeff said... If it sounds like I'm overly critical or nitpicking, it's probably due to a great love of the character. I just didn't get that same feeling from this panel, which kind of colors the podcast for me. There are some interesting points, as they are coming from Neophytes, and this issue isn't a really great intro for Neophytes. At the same time, there was nothing this issue could lead a new fan to, as there wasn't an ongoing series. It was more a love letter to where it started. I understand the frustration, especially since the first two episodes were just gushing praise and love for Superman and Blue Beetle. If Captain Marvel was your favorite character, you'd come into that episode expecting a celebratory parade, and that is not what you got from that episode. I'm sorry if you were hoping for a different type of show, but I was hoping for a different type of comic, and that's just how it goes. Also on the Captain Marvel episode, Frank said, I didn't feel a lot of enthusiasm for the material from any of this podcast's participants, including myself as the listener. I didn't bother to talk to Roy Thomas when he was in Houston last year, but Avengers 2 got me thinking about how he was a classic Marvel writer. So why did I view him so unfavorably? Oh yeah, the part where his talents crawled up at the super myopically tinged bunghole of the golden age of comics to die in the fecund wastes of its colon. Wow, Frank. That's a very verbose way of saying he had his head up his ass. Um, I don't know if you had to censure yourself so much. Um, Frank said, It makes me angry that Thomas would Xerox a nearly 50-year-old script and waste Jerry Bingham's time redrawing it, especially since Bingham is a wholly inappropriate choice for the character and the material. Ever since DC released the first Speculator comic with the 1970s Shazam revival, they've shown their lack of understanding in how to handle the character in the modern era, and this issue did nothing to refute that. Also, the cover sucked, and so did the Ordway and Jeff Smith series. Yeah, I said it. I'll break a beer bottle over this here bar and take you all on. Bring it. Wow. Well, no one ever accused Frank of being a contrarian. Whew! And that only brings us up to the last episode, the Firestorm origin. Siskoid said, I guess Shag learned that you can't call shotgun on something you expect to do 20 years from now. That was referring to Shag announcing that his coverage of Secret Origins would follow the Who's Who podcast. Uh, then Siskoid, Ange, and Chris Franklin all commented on their reading history with Firestorm. Ange thought focusing on Martin Stein over Ronnie was interesting, and then added, I wonder if this is the best version to present to the Secret Origins crowd. As you say, the book was done to introduce these characters to new audiences, not necessarily to build up existing audiences. So by having a book where we look at the semi-disturbed, alcoholic, middle-aged man, and by barely showing the actual hero, and not by showing the Ronnie side at all, I don't know how many adolescent readers would say Firestorm is a book for me. Chris said, I had no idea Stein was so damaged. I knew of the alcoholism, thanks to Shag's Fire and Water Firestorm classic recaps, but the poor old guy was messed up. This was right on the cusp of deconstructing heroes being in vogue, so maybe Conway tapped into the zeitgeist at the time. Then he added, George Tuska, I respect his place in comics history, but I can honestly say I never warmed to him on anything I ever read. His women were pretty attractive, but other than that, just not my thing. 
Jeff Nettleton came back and posited the question of whether or not Clarissa was the first woman Stein had sex with, and then Jeff and Siskoid went back and forth about bullying in college, and a lot of people talked about George Tuska's art. And Chris Franklin complained that my guest wasn't Michael Bradley, but actually Shag, and then Michael Bradley said no, it was him, and Shag said something, who cares, and that was it. No new iTunes reviews this week. <coughs> hint, hint. <coughs> uh, Facebook likes came from Aaron Moss, Anthony Durso, Chad Bokelman, Chris Ivey, Corey Hodgden, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Hammer Strikes, Jared West, Cord Industries, Kyle Benning, Luke Dobb, Paul Andrews, Peter Gatt, Sean M. Myers, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Twitter favorites and retweets came from Alan Middleton, Ange, Between the Pages, Collectibles, Firestorm, Greg Arujo, Hugh DeMann, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, and Telly Chevalis. And that is all for this episode. Feedback for this show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or at BlackCanaryFan or the username CountDrunkula. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. system and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October... 
business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios.